Hello, baby. You're listening to My Perfect Playlist with me, Mark Nelson. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of My Perfect Playlist. Thank you very much for downloading or streaming or listening or whatever it is you are doing. It is lovely to have you here. My guest today is a stand-up comedian and comedy actor, the star of BBC's Scott Squad, Chris Forbes. It's a cracking, cracking listen. Very, very interesting. We get proper, proper deep into some stuff. So I hope you enjoy this podcast, episode seven of My Perfect Playlist, with the wonderful Chris Forbes. Enjoy. Chris Forbes, thank you very much indeed for joining me on My Perfect Playlist. How are you doing, man? Very good, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Ah, oh, it's great. It's, it's so nice. To, it's so nice to have you. How is uh, how's life in general now that lockdown is kind of slowly creeping away? Yeah, not too bad. It, it it feels very surreal, doesn't it? It's kind of like emerging from some sort of kind of caveman era again. Yeah, <laughs> I've mostly been hanging out with my dog. That's been keeping me sane. So she's never really known anything other than lockdown. That's it. Aye, she's got yeah. a lot of attachment issues now. <laughs> she, she doesn't know what awaits her in the big bad world. <laughs> has she met other dogs? She has, yeah, she has. Um, she actually had. I mean, this is quite sad conversation, I suppose. But she had two. <laughs> she had two two best pals, if you like, uh, when we were living up in Glasgow. When we got her, they both people in our neighbourhood had bought puppies at the same time. But then the lockdown happened, and we actually moved house in between the first and second lockdown. So she she lost contact with her only two good friends. Oh God! And uh, I, it was heartbreaking. And did they? All... Did they write? <laughs> no, I. Do you know? I think they send the odd uh, Instagram message from their <laughs> from their own indulgent dog pages. So Does your but... dog have a have a page on Instagram? Oh, you better believe it. Oh, yeah, what on. is the what is the page? It's we Ruby the Cavapoo. God, nice. Oh. <laughs> what I, I mean, because Gareth was got one as well for his dog, and uh, I'm just sitting here thinking, what the fuck has happened to you people? Like, I know. Do you know? <laughs> I think me and Gareth probably both use it as an excuse by saying, um, "Oh, it's our our wife set it up." You know, <laughs> yeah. but you you know, me and Gareth are chatting back and forth like we're I, a couple of dogs. I, exactly, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, thanks for sending over your choices. Uh, some absolute crackers. Um, when you sent them over, I got properly excited because you're one of the first people that has embraced Britpop. So yeah. uh, I'm very excited to talk about a couple of songs. Uh, your opening song, Song to Set the Mood for the playlist, you have gone with Place Your Hands by Reef. <laughs> It's one of the, I mean, there's a few songs in the world that do this, but it's it's right up at the top there for me as a song that within the first two seconds, 
you know what it is. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel good. You, you hear that guitar riff, and, and the minute his vocal kicks in, it's just yeah. It's it's it starts big and gets bigger. So it's just a superb way to start anything. Ah, it's a cracking song. Like it's um, because he got he got slagged off because he got slagged off. Gary Stringer is the, the lead singer of Reef, and he got properly slagged off since. It's almost like cool to slag off a lot of Britpop stuff now, and there's a lot of kind of wanky enemy style journalists that are kind of going, oh, how shit was it at the time? And he's one of the people that gets most slagged off because of his voice. But I think it's a fucking cracking voice. Yeah, I think it's incredible. I think that is just like the cool thing to do after a few generations have passed, is to yeah. slag off things that were cool at the time, but it's it, it's cool now to say that it wasn't cool. Aye. So. And then it'll come round again that it is cool again. And you just aye. Oh, aye. Um, I've, I've, ne- I've never changed my mind. <laughs> no, no, no. I've always wondered with guys like that, with that kind of voice, I always wonder about Brian Johnson in ACDC. I don't yeah. Because it sounds like it hurts. Yeah, they are They are definitely keeping strepsils in business, these guys. Aye, aye. I don't know, like, you know, that's Tom Stade's another one. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if Tom. I need to ask Tom when I get him on this. Like, if he's if he goes at home at night and his voice is just agony because of that graveliness all day long. I know it's. You wonder if it's just a kind of muscle memory thing, like anything Aye. else. Yeah, they've just worked out their throats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> their throats and vocal cords are just grizzled old men, but they're, they're used to. It. <laughs> uh, this song, obviously, um, probably best remembered for being. Used in TFI Friday. Yeah. So it was the It's Your Letters section. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that show in general was great for music. And I think if you love Britpop at the time, it introduced so many bands at that time. But yeah. this song was kind of a, became a bit of an earwig as well for most people, thanks to that show. But um, it was also a song that, I mean, obviously, I, w- I, I was probably at my the height of going out and being a kind of student when this song was kicking about still. And mm-hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't a big dancer or anything or like I would, I wouldn't get up and go mental unless this song came on. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. It just reminded me of all these things that show going out, just feel good mood. So yeah, uh, you don't get that like anymore. Cause I remember, cause I, I, around about that time was when I started going out like a kind of illegal underage drinking and <laughs> I remember what like part of your pre night out was watching TFI Friday at six o'clock on Channel yeah. Four. Like it was part of it because, like you say, there was always four bands on it that were cracking. The guests were always great, and it was it just became part of your plans for going out. Like it, it was unmissable. Yeah, they, they they seemed they managed to do that really rare thing that certain TV shows can do, where you feel like you're mates with everyone on yeah. the show. So yeah, it feels absolutely. like, oh wow, you're just you're just having a bit of a, a drink and a, ba- a bit of banter with these guys that are presenting this show that seem like an absolute dream. Like how how can that be someone's job to be working on a show like that? I know. I mean that show it, it would never. I mean I know a lot of people say it's got, it's a proper kind of contrived thing to say, but people always say this now. Oh, that show would never get made these days. But genuinely, due to due to the sheer kind of hedonisticness of it. It would yeah. never get made now because I've I've seen because I'm quite I, I love the show I absolutely love, and I love Britpop and there's been a couple of really really sad pathetic moments where I've been away at gigs down south and I've been sitting in a hotel room and all no other no other acts were out, were up for going for a beer 
So I've got like six cans of Stella and going back to my room and watched episodes of TFI Friday <laughs> on my laptop, just like weeping for the past. And <laughs> that's you know most comics when they're travelling go home with a six pack and watch porn. So if anything, you've got a better, <laughs> you've got a, you've got a higher moral ground than oh, most. I'm still wanking at it. Like there's no like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when you come and Sean Ryder's on the TV, it's a really weird experience. Uh, the uh, but like I've I've watched clips of it, and that first episode, like you say, everyone. I mean, it's set in a bar for a start, yeah. and everyone is pissed. Everyone is coked out of their fucking mind at six o'clock at night because it's live, and you go, yeah. Jesus, what, what was the after party like? Uh, do you know? Uh, you know, some people then. Take can take him or leave him, but Chris Evans and certainly in its pomp was just such a natural broadcaster as well. Radio oh, God, and that yeah. show, but I, I I actually read his. I think he's got a couple of biographies now, but I read his first biography he put out, which was actually excellent. Really interested in the childhood and everything, but the chapters that cover the, the TFI yeah. shows are are brilliant, like really worth reading because it, oh, it was it was as mad as you are expecting or as as it looked. Yeah. There's an, that was just, there's just nine, mid-90s TV when you could get, like, I remember, the Big Breakfast was the same. Those people, pe- those people pissed in the morning on the Big Breakfast. There's an amazing clip of the Big Breakfast uh, that was circulating about Facebook a couple of, a couple of months ago, and it basically sums up 90s television, because it's Mark Little, and uh, I think it's Zoe Ball at the time were presenting it, and they've got Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage on it, right? and... <laughs> Macho Man Randy Savage, I don't know. He's basically whatever whatever WWE give them as a monthly allowance for steroids. He's taken them all <laughs> that morning before the interview. It is unbelievable. Song that reminds you of your childhood, and you have gone with Val Dunikin's Delaney's Donkey. There was Riley pushing it, shoving it, shushing it. Hogan, Logan, and everyone in town lined up attacking it and shoving it and smacking it. They might as well have tried to push the town hall down. The donkey was eyeing them, openly defying them, winking, blinking, and twisting. This is an absolute classic and an absolute belter if anyone's not heard it. Um, and I don't know if this does anything to uh, kind of. Um, Display the perception that people in the northwest coast of Scotland <laughs> are a little bit behind the times or anything. But um, when I grew up, my uh, both my folks who are, are from tiny wee places, Gaelic and Pulu, they were really into kind of um, Scottish traditional music, Irish kind of Celtic music, and anything that was kind of folky or traditional. Uh, if it wasn't just straight out kind of mod music and my mum in particular loved Val Dunigan and he had all manner of sorts I mean he has he has awesome songs that are just written that he writes about things that are uh, slightly more pertinent or important but Delaney's donkey <laughs> sticks in my head as a childhood probably because my mum knew it was quite funny for kids to hear that one and to this day I can't Pass a field that has a donkey in it without going. Oh, Delaney had the donkey <laughs> that everyone admired, and I know the song, I know the lyrics, and it just takes me back to a kind of happy place of my mum singing these types of songs. So, uh, I mean, Val, I could have probably picked a number of Val Dunican songs, but Delaney's donkey has really stuck with me. <laughs> it's a cracking week. Like it's a very, very funny song. Like the the interweaving of the lyrics are absolutely oh. brilliant. It's 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 essentially like Irish folk rap. Yeah, <laughs> like, it is. 
in his time, and it uh, and it also tells a fantastic story. And there's so many wonderful characters. It's it's, oh. it's see that song. It's literally like it could be an episode of Father Ted. You know, it tells it's got so many characters, and it has a beginning, that middle, is, and end. That is the perfect way to describe it. Absolutely perfect because be, essentially it's a, a a donkey that's getting into a race and refuses yep. to budge. So the entire town, including the the, the the lifeguards at one point <laughs> come out yeah. to try and get this thing to move and it and eventually it does and wins the race. Oh, it's a beautiful beautiful tale. I don't know why the movie rights haven't been bought up. <laughs> the donkey starring Liam Neeson. <laughs> <laughs> I have a particular set of skills. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know who you are. I don't know why you won't run. Um, <laughs> the, I have to take... Uh, exception to one line okay. Chris Forbes which is incredibly racist against Scottish people because <laughs> there is a line that um, someone from the town uh, has grabbed onto the donkey's neck and he has got a grip like a Scotsman holding onto a five pound note <laughs> a five pound note yes yes, <laughs> it's um, yeah unfortunately that seems to be a reputation that started some time ago and but even to this day the scots are still known as being particularly tight I, mm. and it's you know I, it's not something i've ever agreed with but i guess there's probably stereotypes for other nations that they would refute as well but um it's a wonderful image i, I like to think that just it could be anyone holding on a five pound note but um, yeah it's 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 a stereotype that i mean it's not the worst stereotype you can have like the stereotype when i was growing up certainly of irish people was oh, or stupid, yeah. And you don't want that stereotype. But also being tight, it's not because it's not really founded at all. As, of all the Scottish people I know, it's not really like. I'd, I'd prefer it if it, they just have to tweak that stereotype to being tight to financially responsible. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then all of a, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we seem like a really a really sensible race of people here. <laughs> I do remember there was a. a I don't think this story makes me sound particularly great, but um, me and my me and my wife were down in a uh, reading once, and we were walking along, and there was a guy uh, begging in the streets. And normally I would give money, but I didn't have any change at all. Like it generally was one of those times where I went, "Have you got any change?" No, sorry, I don't. And as I passed him, he said, "Do you have any change?" And I said, "No, sorry, I don't." And then I twigged it was a Scottish guy, so I went back and gave him a fiver. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> That's funny. So we we just don't want our own uh, people to think we're tight. But exactly. The of, yeah, yeah, yeah. The rest of the world. That's fine. <laughs> so, uh, so you grew up uh, north of Scotland. Yeah, I mean the very early youth um, in the northwest coast. I was actually born in Stirling. The kind of bo- mm. boring geography of my childhood. Um, a bit kind of moved progressively down um, until I ended up in. Bridge year for the kind of majority of my schooling. Yeah. So, um, and you've kind of you've moved back. Yeah, it's been bizarre as well. It's been bizarre. Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been a kind of rural person, mm-hmm. uh, and I've certainly, and perhaps that's all, all had a huge influence on the type of music I like. Um, mm. uh, it feels like people in rural communities do seem to like kind of Celtic and traditional music more, but. Uh, it's bizarre. Yeah, there's like I said this with other people have done it. Um, when I'm making up the playlist and I put it on Spotify and I'm listening through all the songs and making notes, themes do emerge uh, that you might not realise they do. And 
folk music is definitely one that emerges from yours. Like even even some of them. Like there's a song we're going to talk about in a minute that you won't realise has a kind of folk music connection. <laughs> uh, so aye, it's it's very interesting. So let's talk about that song. Uh, a song that reminds you of being a teenager. You've gone for Blinded by the Sun by the Seahorses. Yes, I for some reason, I mean, obviously there was such a big kind of indie Britpop boom, and there was there was all the big bands and your Oasis and Blur, and um, whether it was a conscious choice to, I mean, the Seahorses were were big in their own right as well, but whether it was a conscious choice to kind of quite like some of the other bands that weren't as big but were still cool, like Shed Seven, Seahorses, mm-hmm. Charlatans. But the Blinded by the Sun song, particularly when it came out, I don't know if it was just because it had the, such a cool guitar riff as mm-hmm. well. Um, but I was in high school when it came out, and I think another reason it sticks in my head is some of the cooler kids in school that were a few years above us had started a band. <laughs> and one day they put on a show in the school, and we all had to go and watch them in the auditorium, and they opened the show with Blinded by the Sun, and it was like, no way, nice. that's that really cool song that we love. And there's these guys playing it that we know right in front of us. And it just felt like it was an all just a really cool, cool song yeah. at that time. And it felt like it made me want to learn the guitar. It made me want to be able to sing it. It made me want to just be more about that type of music. Yeah, it's a great, great song. I mean, because it, it, it was, I think it was a second single from that. But for the brief period that they were around, the Seahorses were pretty big. Yeah, one album and one single afterwards, and then <laughs> they split up because it seems like nobody can work with John Squire. Like it's just like it's just one of the, <laughs> like he'll blame he, the the thing. The reason they split up was because basically Chris Helm, who was a singer, so John Squire left the Stone Roses in really bad terms. And and there's mm. a, there was a, I remember at the time thinking this was really cool that somebody had worked out that the Seahorses is an anagram of he hates roses. No way. Yeah. And I was like, hmm. Um, but uh, so he left them an acrimonious split <clears throat> and he was starting a new band and he, he'd got another load of guys around, uh, musicians that he knew, and they needed a singer. And they spotted this guy uh, busking outside a guitar shop. It was Chris Helm. He went out and spoke to him and he says, well, I'm actually doing a gig tonight. Uh, it's like an open mic kind of singer-songwriter thing. So he went along and John Squire admits like there was, there was better singers there. But the reason he picked... Chris Helm was because he closed his eyes while he sang, and only no. f- only folk singers do that. <laughs> he wanted so a folk the, singer. No way! So that's yeah. the wee folky link. Yeah, yeah. For some for some reason, I was worried you were going to say he picked him because he closed his eyes because that was cool or something. It's just like, a, <laughs> like some sort of cool image. Like, look at this guy getting right into the music. <laughs> uh, what were you like as a teenager? I feel like. I went through a few phases. Again, that's probably very cliche, but I definitely wasn't someone that I guess knew who he was. And um, that was probably, again, from a lot of having different influences. A, from having parents that were from the Northwest Coast. B, being someone that was thinking I was into sports. Um, uh, I guess C, probably at first thinking that I was a kind of good kid and then D, trying to rebel. So... I went through so many different phases of 
liking different types of music and myself personally liking different styles. So I think it when at this about this time at the Seahorses, I was rocking um I'd bought a Sovi ring, had my sovereign ring. <laughs> um which was you know, if you know me now, it seems unthinkable that I had a Sovi ring. I had the the haircut which was a shaved head completely other than my fringe which was kind of doing the rounds <laughs> uh, and I had a kind of oasis kind of uh, this jumper that I used to love wearing a kind of baggy cream kind of thing I used to and so I think about that stage I thought that I was or I could be a kind of indie rock star or something mm-hmm. so because I, I, I started to try and play in bands as well and sing in bands so I think that was probably around that that time yeah because a lot of people um when I've had them on, uh, when I asked them about being a teenager, pretty much everyone has gone, I was a kind of person that didn't really, not that didn't really fit in, but didn't know where they fit in and were changing and all the time. And I don't think, I don't think I would have people on. Let's say if someone came on and went, yeah, I was popular all the way through school, all the way through high school, you wouldn't have them on because those people now have no fucking stories and they're not interested <laughs> in, in the slightest. <laughs> well, that's it. It's uh it's, it's, I mean, high school for most people, as you say, is the journey that everyone goes through, and you, it does take a while to discover yourself. And I think even the fact that it was very bizarre, almost especially back then, that I got into basketball. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask it, you about the basketball. Yeah. So that that kind of set me apart in in that, for some people, it was kind of like, oh, that's quite cool. But certainly in Scotland in the nineties, you decided that you, you you're really into basketball. Most people either assumed that you were you know, gay or mentally ill. It was, it was like <laughs> su- such a bizarre thing. You know? That's the that's the binary nature of high school, right? If you think yeah. anything different, you're either gay or mentally ill. That's, yeah. that's high school in Scotland. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, so how did you get like so? Because you're 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 tall anyway. Where where when did you start to spring up where you were? Because I assume you started basketball and you were a fairly decent sized teenager. Yeah, I, I I had I had grown taller. Uh, I was kind of in primary school where I started to grow tall, kind of primary six and seven. Uh, I used to talk about it in one of my routines about kind of essentially being about as tall as I am now, six two in primary school, and just other <laughs> other kids running away from me. And I'm like, why won't you play with me? You're like, it's a big freak. But um, yeah, and it just so happened that the high school that we were going to be going to, Greyfi. There was one of the PE teachers that was, he'd actually been a big football guy in his day, but he'd been really pushing basketball. His son had played basketball and he was coming round to the local primary schools that were going to be feeding into the high school, trying to encourage kids to not just consider football, which every kid in the world pretty much does in Scotland. Um, and he was saying, look, basketball's great. And this guy came and did a few sessions in the primary schools. And that was my earliest memory of thinking, ah, oh, that's pretty cool. And all of a sudden my height, was a bit of an advantage and it kind of made me quite cool because I was quite good at that and at the time I loved football and I was playing for local teams you know when you're a wee kid and and even the BB team but all of a sudden playing on a Saturday morning in the pissing rain getting beaten 5-0 because we weren't very good (laughs) compared to when I went into high school playing in a nice warm yeah. uh, gym hall and, and actually being good because I was tall and this guy that was at the forefront of kind of pushing basketball in Scotland in general, this this guy that was our coach, uh, Lindsay Lang, went on to win all sorts of awards for how much he did for basketball in Scotland. So quite lucky in that way that just so happened I met him when I yeah. was 
at that age. And you went to you went to America on a basketball scholarship as well. Yeah, so again, that was all thanks to that coach. Uh, and as I say, his son had played basketball and had done something similar. He got to go out and finish his last year of high school. Um, and that was the same programme he managed to get me on with at the time, and probably quite naively, but no less excitedly, to see if you could then gain a scholarship for college or, or something like that over there. You have to have have to compete really at, at high school level um so that was incredible and, and in fact I, I had to there was a couple of occasions where i, I really had to choose songs i was nearly choosing songs that really reminded me of the states or this that and the other and that was like a whole other genre yeah especially because it was late 90s you know the indie kind of brit pop scene was was kind of just fading out but when i moved over there i was 16 so i was still absorbing everything and the music style over there was completely different i had a, a bizarre uh you know few months of getting in oh i'm right into i'm right into rap and hip-hop now yeah. because this is this was brand new to me really the type of music and um it was more like your kind of uh, smash mouth and your kind of blink 182 and all uh, this and and um where did you go in america i was in a place it was vancouver in washington state it's a hell of a uh, leap like going from Going from uh, high school in kind of rural Scotland to then moving at 16 years old to America, hell of a big thing for a 16-year-old to do. Yeah, and you know, all the lead up to it, I was so excited because I couldn't believe I had this opportunity in basketball. But I remember specifically, and I actually, the people, the the kind of company that organised this programme, there was a girl going out to do uh, a different sport in a different state in America. I wish I'd kept in touch with her. We did it first, but we were on the same flight from Edinburgh to Minneapolis, and then she was flying on to where she was going. I think she might have been going to Texas, and then I was carrying on flying to Portland. And we both just met a day because we, we both knew we were doing this program, and they, they set you up with someone so you don't feel like you're traveling alone. And when we were in Minneapolis, we both had about a three-year layover, and we were getting on quite well, and we both kind of went, what are we doing? Mm. You know, she was 16 as well, and it's like, it's just hit us. It's like we've we've just left our families for a year, mm-hmm. like, and everything we know, and we kind of had this freak out. And I'd never been so pleased that there was somebody else there at the same time experiencing this bizarre undertaking. How did the American high school like accept a Scottish guy? Was was there a was there a curiosity about you? And yeah, I, I would, <laughs> that's a good word actually. There was definitely a curiosity at first. And I, I did take my time to fit in, but I think mm. I'm, I'm. I mean, you know me; I'm quite a cheesy guy anyway. So <laughs> it, it, it didn't it didn't take me long to really embrace the cheesy kind of American high school life because, uh, and I've said this many times, but it did feel like every stereotype that I had in my head that I'd seen in TV shows and films about American high school were were actually true. Um, and so the, for the first few weeks, I was really keeping my head down. I was very quiet, very nervous. The whole thing of walking into an American high school mm. canteen and thinking, where do I sit? There were such clearly defined groups. Oh, there really God, was yeah. like the jocks and the kind of the goths and the dropouts. You know, everyone's in casual clothes, you know, and coming from wearing school uniforms in Scotland, it was like, am I wearing the right things? And where do I go? And um the basketball season didn't start until three months into the high school term. So right. all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is like my life. I've, I've not just come here to play basketball. I have to integrate and, you know, do everything I'm supposed to be doing. But yeah, what, once I, once I 
met good pals and kind of became a bit more comfortable there. I, I loved it. But yeah. the very first day, uh, it was a teacher, Mr. Perry, actually. He was a history teacher. We were all handed a little booklet out, and it was all the school rules. And um, he was just going around everyone. He was like, all right, everyone, just take a paragraph, read it out. We'll just sit through these school rules, regulations. And I was literally counting down because it was the first time in my life I, I was conscious of the fact that I had an accent mm-hmm. because everyone was standing up, all these preppy <laughs> cheerleader types and jocks standing up going, you you better not run in the corridor and stuff like this. <laughs> and I was counting them down going, oh, am I going to have to do one of these? And I was literally the last paragraph. And I was like, this is going to sound so weird, you know? Mm. And I was after a girl that had been up and she was so preppy and her voice was like, you know, uh, if you've got any inquiries, make sure you go to the secretary at the high school desk. And mm. I was like, this is going to sound horrendous. And I stood up kind of quite quiet and shy. And I was like uh, reading out whatever it was, you know, when you're down in the <laughs> PE department, you know, uh, make sure you have a, a change. And I could just feel everyone's head and eyes turning oh. to look. And it was like, who is this guy? Yeah, it'd have been good if you'd have proper Scottished it up. <laughs> like, like if she'd have gone like, uh, if you have any problems, can you, you just can contact your valedictorian? And then you, yeah. just, you just stood up and went, don't swing in your fucking chairs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would have been it. Um, uh, the only two more things I want to ask about it, because I'm fascinated by it. When you went in there, because a uh, tall guy, you're a good looking guy, Scottish accent, women, the, the girls of high school must have been like, uh, yes, please <laughs> tell me that's true. <laughs> uh, to, I, I have to admit it was true, but it, it, it took time because the first thing I always like to point out is, uh, I, I, well, first of all, I'm flattered that you think I'm a, I'm a good looking guy. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> but you must remember that what you might think is good looking here is is horrendous. Oh, yeah. To, <laughs> These muscle-bound jocks that have been like working out <laughs> since they were twelve—they've all got perfect teeth, tans, you know, flowing locks. I, I was a, a, a bloody pimple-laden, big geek, you know, big long gangly Scottish pale guy. So, um, and actually, be it the change of diet or whatever it was, people thought that maybe it was like the change of milk or something. But within like the first month of moving there and living that living over there and different diet. I broke out in horrendous acne as well, oh. um, and I was on all sorts of medication. And that actually made me even more shy. I was I got mm. really homesick the first couple of months. However, as my confidence grew, as I say, and as I met people, and and more people were then taken by the whole Scottish thing. Um, you know, I was like running for school president mm. under the kind of unite the clans type of thing, mm. and the more I did. Uh, talks in front of the classes and got into different sports I played football over there cross country basketball the more my confidence grew the more I did I, I have to admit that, that the accent was was a, was a key ingredient to I don't know let's say my success yeah. in, in enjoying those my time over there with um, the opposite sex well were you not were you not voted king at the prom yeah I, I guess that was the, the perfect way to describe the journey of <laughs> I did start off pretty quiet and nervous and, and wondering how I was going to survive over there. But by the end of it, I'd embraced the lifestyle so much and people really loved the Scottish thing that I was <laughs> I was voted prom king. I mean... And my, my prom queen, Kayla Kramer. That's so, not... What, a, what an American name. What a perfect yeah. American name for a prom queen. 
Oh, I mean, you, the 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 quarterback was the favourite to win. His name was Luke Chase. So, oh. <laughs> stiff oh. competition. Yeah. Stiff competition. Oh, God. Uh, and the last thing I want to know, uh, going to an American high school, when is it they give you a gun? <laughs> yeah, day one. Just... <laughs> You just walk in and that's it. You got, you got you got your locker and you opened it up and it was waiting for you. Yeah, that's the top the top paragraph in the school rules. Always remember to carry a spare clip. You don't want to. Uh, right, we'll do some quick ones uh, now. A song that always gets you dancing. You've gone for Mr. Blue Sky by ELO. I don't believe I've ever met anyone that doesn't like this song or that if we are out and about and you hear this song, it doesn't make people want to dance. Um, it was also the reason that we actually had it as the first song that our wedding band played because we knew it would just get everyone straight up right from the get-go. So yeah, it's it's just, I don't know, it's just like the, an ultimate feel-good song. It, it is, you're, you're absolutely right, it is impossible not to like this song. Right from the opening bars, it's just... It's like it it, it. it feels like the song is like it, it is kind of describing yeah. describing a, the sun breaking out and cheering everyone up, and that's exactly what it does all the way through the song. I absolutely yeah. love it, and it's you because it's, it's a great dancing song. Have you seen Guardians of the Galaxy two? Yes, yeah. Your baby Groot dances to this. It's phenomenal. You know, if if even wildlife and shrubbery danced it, you know, you, <laughs> you you know you're on to a good thing. It's there's there's not one lyric in it that, that isn't happy. You know, it's just so no. beat. So that was that was that that wasn't your first dance. It was the first song yeah, it was the just, band played. Yeah, yeah, we had our first dance, but then we we knew we were like, can you open with that? We'd heard them playing that when we mm. went to see them doing a wee demo, and it was like, if you open with that song everyone will go and it did it's like everyone just flooded because that's what you want at your wedding I guess you want to know people are going to go up to dance mm-hmm. and that, that song kicked on and, and everyone jumped up yeah I'm a big fan of Yellow a lot of people don't realise that because the, they sound so Beatlesy. yeah but people don't realise that the Beatles took quite a lot from them as well because <laughs> it, it just it does I mean this this could this could be on Sgt Peppers easily yeah. this song they took stuff from other people as well they, they borrowed a hell of a lot from Elvis at the start, they borrowed a hell of a lot from the Beach Boys as well. But yeah, I think I think ELO had the Beatles not been around, ELO would have been a massive, massive band. Do you know, interestingly, my dad, who didn't listen to a lot of kind of trendy music, I guess you would say, um, he loved kind of country western. He would listen to like Tammy Wynette and Charlie Pride and stuff like this. But when it came to the Beatles, he he was never a big fan, which always interested me, mm. given that they would have been massive at his time, but his reason was always that he loved the Beach Boys more. Yeah. And and I hadn't realised that, that there was that kind of thing. And back then there was people that were like, no, I'm, I'm a Beach Boys guy, not a Beatles, you know. It's yeah. like almost, almost like Oasis Blur, like similar, but, you know. So. Oh, there was a huge, there was a huge, a huge friendship between them, but a huge uh, rivalry uh, and professional rivalry between them. Because it kind of what sent Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys mad a bit because yeah. he was determined that he was going to outdo Sergeant Peppers. <laughs> and he did uh, pet sounds. Pet sounds, and, yeah. And then after that, the Beatles were like going, "Fucking hell! How do we top pet sounds now?" So, 
<laughs> it's good. I mean, it's great. That rivalry producing that quality of music is just... Uh, best song for a road trip. And you have picked Ho Hey by the Lumineers. I'm one of these people that's a very introspective driver, so I like to listen to kind of folky stuff and mm-hmm. uh, uh, kind of singer-songwriters. And the Lumineers, I actually absolutely love, um, and this is obviously one of their bigger hits. Um, and I, I just find that type of music ideal to drive to, very introspective. If there's kind of good folky music on, yeah, uh, I can be driving and contemplating life or thinking about things from yesteryear, and that's I'm, I'm, that's the kind of driver I am. Perfect walk-on song. You have gone for an absolute classic, loaded by Primal Scream. I love songs that will then... I love songs that will merge styles, genres, mm-hmm. and instruments. So the fact that they have that brass section right near the start as well. And also, I'm a real sucker for songs, only when they get it right, when they use a bit of lyrics or a bit of uh, audio from something. Oh. And at the start, to hear that, just what is it What you want to do? You know, we want to be free. We want to, be, we want to have a good time. We want to get loaded. It's just yeah. like, oh, here, here we go, man. Walk yeah. on. Have a good show. It's brilliant. That's class. It's Peter Fonda. Uh, in a, a film called The Wild Ones it's a kind That's of biker it. type film proper B movie as well Yeah. but yeah the Primal Scream are perfect at that and Primal Scream were a like a heavy rock band before this and they were just experimenting and they just thought oh, fuck it we'll just try and merge dance music and rock and they're one of the one of the kind of first bands to do it and it really <laughs> really works it's great that you're obviously the perfect guy to do this podcast because it's like every song that comes up, you know all these brilliant wee gems about them as well. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time reading about music. This is, yeah. this is my teenage you're, years coming back. You've spent a lot of time masturbating to TFI. Yes. Yeah. When you're wanking, you're learning, Chris. <laughs> Next one, best song from a film. Now, I'd never heard, I've never heard this song. I'd never heard of the film as well. So I'm going to ask you to... Describe a lot of it. You went for a song called Say It To Me Now by Glenn Hansard. Uh, yeah, so this this song uh, is from a remarkable film, uh, I have to say, and I would highly recommend it to anyone that a likes kind of indie films, but b loves music, because um, it was it's a film called Once, uh, and it's essentially it's set in Dublin, um, and it's essentially a busker that uh, meets uh, a, a woman, a girl as well, who's um, an immigrant there, and they kind of fall in love through their love of music they write things together um and it's before it kind of became cool again when they, they started making kind of musicals essentially um hollywood you know they started making your la la lands and your mamma mia's and 
there was a kind of resurgence of musical films. This, I think, really set it off. Um, and Glenn Hensard, uh, or Hansard, sorry, has been around for a long time. He's played in a few different bands, but I've never met, met I've not met him, <laughs> I've never heard anyone that can sing with the same level of passion as him. Mm. And this particular song opens the film, and it's it's just incredible. And uh, I love listening to it. It's, it's Again, it's another one I wanted to get the guitar out and try and learn um, and sing the minute I'd heard it. The, the whole soundtrack to this film is incredible. Um, it also, not that song, the, the kind of big song from it was called Falling Slowly. It actually won an Oscar. And um, Steven Spielberg, of all people, um, had like commented on it and how good the film was, how much they'd achieved with such a small budget. And um, the, the the girl that's in the film, oh, I'm forgetting her last name. It's it's like Marquette or something. They she had gone up to do a speech after Glenn had done his speech, and the music had cut her off. And I believe, if I'm remembering this correctly, because it was such a huge achievement for such a tiny film to have won the best song from this soundtrack they allowed her to come back on after the break and give a speech about what it meant for her. Oh, brilliant. And it's one of the best speeches you'll ever hear about... I mean, these people were nowhere near that level of filmmaking or, or, or that level of musical, you know, uh, fame. And, that, you know, she was very young at the time of the film as well. And to get to come on and, and make this speech and then the fact that they allowed her to do it, talking about dreams coming true, like a kind of classic speech, but less cheesy because she wasn't American. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. About what it meant. It, it's a really wonderful speech to watch. Because you, you, right, that, well, that's an interesting thing you've brought up there. Because um, as, as, as long as being a stand-up, you're a, an actor as well. I try, yes. So what, did you want to become an actor first? What was your first kind of passion Comedy was the first passion. Um, again, go, going back to my America days, uh, they, they kind of held this kind of talent show at the school, and and um, it was it was it was called Mister Heritage, which was the name of the school, Heritage High School. And there was different rounds, you know, daft kind of taking the mic rounds, like a swimsuit round, and you know we all had to come on doing something daft, you know, and. Um, one of the rounds was a talent round and I couldn't think of a talent that I had. And so all I did was I put on my kilt and see you Jimmy hat and talked about the differences between Scotland and America. And essentially that was then what you, I guess you would call my first five minutes of comedy. Mm -hmm. Although I didn't realize that's what I was doing. I just thought if I could go up and tell a funny story for this bit. And that was really what made me think that is incredible. You know, that, that five minutes of getting laughs from a room full of people was better than, the, the the four months of playing basketball, which had been my whole reason for going out there. The only and the reason I got into acting then was I had no idea how to get into comedy. I, you know, when you're younger, you're probably the same. You, you don't really see adverts for comedy clubs, and you, you don't know how to start. It's one of these things like Billy Connolly would say about pole vaulting. It's like how how do you get into that? You don't see people walking about with a pole vault. <laughs> I, I'd never met anyone that was a comic or that went to comedy shows. Um, you just see the, the big stand-ups on TV. And certainly back then when we started out before the kind of stand-up boom, there was only really the four or five household named comics. And yeah. it's like, well, that's just must be them. They're, they're the stand-ups. So I had no idea that there was this underground world of clubs and circuits. So in my mind, I thought, well, the best thing I could do is apply to a, 
acting and performance course, that seems like, well, that's performing. That must be part and partial. And it wasn't until I was in my second year of that course at college that um, I saw an advert in a paper that was the So You Think You're Funny competition. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, wow, look, there's something that's specifically comedy. And so, funnily enough, looking back now with hindsight, now that I know the political landscape of the comedy <laughs> world, I probably shouldn't have done it as my first ever comedy gig, uh-huh. like, you're, like you're supposed to. But I did it and loved it. You know, I had a good gig. Because when I, when I first really started to get to know you was when you were doing a part of a sketch group with Kevin and James. Yeah, how did I get up how there? How did I get up there? Do you miss doing that stuff with the guys? Yeah, I absolutely loved it because, I mean, I'd been doing stand-up for maybe three or four years before we started, um, and stand-up was great because it was I loved getting into that world and meeting folks like yourself. But it, it's obviously, as every comic would know, it's it can be quite an isolating mm-hmm. kind of thing to get into as well, uh, quite a solitary solitary thing. So then getting to do comedy, which I then loved, but also with two of what were and still are two of my best pals, mm-hmm. was like, well, this is a dream. Now I'm getting to do gigs and clubs, but with my mates, so we can talk about it afterwards and have drinks, you know, and um so that was good much to probably the disgust of other comics that were like oh this bloody sketch troop no, coming d- on <laughs> do you know what i was gonna say that um because i'm not a huge huge fan of sketch comedy but i remember when i first saw you guys and it was genuinely the funniest sketch comedy i'd seen in years like it was it was it was enjoyable and it was very very good incredibly Thank well you. written and because the three of you were so natural well not james uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> natural on stage and clearly enjoyed being on stage yeah it was it was I infectious think... so it, it, it was incredibly easy to watch you guys I, when you were doing i think i always said that i think it made a difference that we were mates mm-hmm. first uh, and that we liked we had performed together doing this because I, I do think sometimes a pitfall that not that I would ever say that people shouldn't do this. I think comics should try absolutely everything, working with different people, sketches, music, whatever. But sometimes comics will just kind of get together at mm-hmm. some point and say, let's try and do sketches. And it doesn't gel as well. Whereas yeah. we were mates that had come up at the kind of same time and had done performances together. So it's it seemed very natural. And I think not that I would take credit for this but I think having been in the stand-up world for the first few years I knew we had to make it work for clubs whereas a lot yeah. of sketch groups can be quite longer kind of long convoluted sketches or only work at sketch nights where I felt like we were quite quick like we had sketches that could work on a weekend crowd even you know it was yeah. like we could fit into a stand-up environment next song a song that makes you happy and you've picked hello happiness by the drifters so The Drifters are, if not my favourite band, you know, definitely within the top three. And again, this was the type of music that my parents would listen to from their kind of eclectic mix. If it wasn't, if it wasn't kind of folky traditional music, um, they loved, for whatever reason, this kind of Motown, uh, kind of wholesome harmony, kind of quartet type stuff. 
and the drifters i mean i had a drifters cassette that my mum had had you know and i i'd listened to it constantly the minute i had a walkman all through my all through my life i kept this cassette i was actually gutted when i couldn't find it only about five years ago um and just these this a and b side of a cassette tape you know probably about 12 songs and this was on it it was always my favorite and again the drifters are one of these bands where they have so many feel-good songs and, and it probably set off like eleanor and even my brother would slag me off for saying i, I love <laughs> i love harmonies in songs yeah. and the drifters were the kings of them um and you know, I, I loved a lot of songs and singers from that type of era and that type of world. I, I was very close to putting Sam Cooke somewhere in this list, but the Drifters had so many uh, emotive songs as well as kind of uplifting songs. But their harmonies were so good. I used to wish that yeah. I could meet like a group of guys where we could <laughs> sing like yeah. in harmonies like this. Because yeah, and th- this song I've used a lot of times to pick me up, and not just that. Um, Eleanor, she actually she did a wee speech at our wedding, but she mentioned the fact that I picked her up one night at midnight from Glasgow University Library when she was just stressing out, working on her doctorate, and um, I was waiting to pick her up outside at midnight. She's been working <laughs> just like from like eight in the morning to midnight, and I was sat outside in our wee Renault Clio campus, and I had the Drifters. This is when we still had cassette tapes in the car as well. I had that. I had that cassette tape, and I. I put this song on, put the volume up loud, and the minute I saw her walking out of the library towards the car, I put this song on. I was like, here we go. Oh, Hello, happiness. Nice. Goodbye, loneliness. It's just, it's the perfect, perfect song. Smooth. Very smooth. Because like, very much like Mr. Blue Sky, this, it's impossible not to smile when this song's yeah. on. It's impo- yeah. you, you've got a heart made of stone if you don't com- immediately chirp up when this comes on. Going from that to a song that makes you sad... A River by Joni Mitchell. So I wish I had a river I could skate away on. But it don't snow here, it stays pretty green. I'm gonna make a lot of money, then I'm gonna quit this crazy. It's a tricky song to talk about, I guess, at times, and uh, I've probably mentioned it in the past to folks. I think a lot of people will associate this song with Christmas mm-hmm. and the kind of flip side of Christmas and how it's not always kind of a, a jolly holiday for everyone. Um, it just so happens that this song, uh, it hadn't actually really even been in my consciousness until we sadly lost my dad who passed away on Christmas Day. Um, and uh, two days later it was, even if I had heard it in the past, it hadn't really clicked with me or registered with me. But two days later this song came on and I was so thankful that there was a a song that actually resonated with people that were maybe not having the happiest time at Christmas so um it's I I would say it's the ultimate sad song for it reminding me of that but I also am hugely thankful that this song exists so it I, I you know it's my favorite sad song so it's not it's not yeah. just a song that makes me sad it's just it's it's a wonderful sad song actually that's really interesting. A lot of people have said that when I've asked this question. Actually, there's a there's a song that reminds them of somebody, but in a very nice way as well. Yeah. And um, it's because I mean, like, I know it, like it's hard to lose anyone at any time, but it's true as it's like having terrible news at Christmas is worse 
than anything else because it's not something you can escape. That anniversary is going to come round every year at a time when you'll look out and you'll see the majority of people having the time of their lives and having great joy. Yeah, you know, and it's a real shame. And I think in more recent years, we've tried to, in terms of my family, we've tried to then at least use it as, well, it's it's a very memorable occasion, the fact that it was Christmas mm-hmm. Day. So, you know, what better time to remember them? But it's impossible to ignore the fact that, and actually, especially because of music, because music plays such a big part with Christmas, they'll start blasting musical songs, you know, Christmas songs out. Exactly kind of November so you're like I've, I've kind of written about it in the past of having this basically two month long <laughs> heralding in of when the day my dad died you know it's like yeah. this long procession of, of you know mind numbing songs yeah um, it's, it's one thing I think everyone's guilty of forgetting that Christmas is because I, I mean I, I love Christmas and uh, it is my favourite time of year and I'm guilty of forgetting that for a lot of people it does remind them of terrible times. Yeah, and but you know the worst thing is you 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 get to a point where you feel bad if people feel guilty as well. Yeah, you know, and I, I'm I'm still very thankful that we have close friends or, or other family members that will say, you know, thinking of you today, you know, but but I also ultimately want to make sure people don't just think that we're sitting around miserable that day. That we do still want to enjoy Christmas and and still make happy memories, but. Um, it's impossible to ignore, but I'd hate for people to think, "Oh God, you know, I, I better say something to, yeah. to them because it's a, it's a miserable time." Yeah, but... you don't you don't want people tiptoeing around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The when I listened to this song over the past couple of days, because <clears throat> I really love it, and I hadn't actually heard it until a couple of years ago, and it came on it came on one of the the kind of Christmas channels. They have like Magic Christmas that let you say start yeah. in November, and they just play Christmas songs all day. Um, and I was listening to the lyrics and because it's a sad song anyway and it's a sad song because it's obviously like so many songs is about a breakup mm-hmm. when Joni Mitchell was breaking up with her boyfriend and she went on this trip to Europe and then she split up with him by letter while they were yeah. there but it's it, it, it's such an interesting song because in a lot of sad songs both sides are talking about how much they miss each other but in this she properly takes the blame for it yeah, uh, yeah. She basically says, "Look, I, I basically pushed away the best thing I've ever had now, and yeah, I don't I'm know sure what to do uh, about it." Yeah, there's, there's, I'm sure there's a thing in it where she says, "I'm selfish and I'm sad." Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's, and she talks about it being difficult to handle or something. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, it's, it, I'm sure it was a, I can't remember now, but I'm sure it was another famous m- musician that it, this, this split was about yeah. as well. Yeah, and the other thing I noticed was. Uh, the piano incorporates jingle bells quite a lot. Yeah, and that and because uh, there's huge debates. Almost, I guess, like is Die Hard a Christmas film? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But th- th- there's been debates about you know is it even a Christmas song? And you know it doesn't necessarily have to be a Christmas song. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it talks about that time of year, but it's such a beautifully kind of slightly off-key minor version mm-hmm. of the jingle bells mm-hmm. melody that just sets the tone. It's like it's it's here's jingle bells but slightly dark you yeah. know it's like yeah it's yeah. the same sentiment but slightly skewed uh your next song is a song that reminds you of a friend or family member and you've gone for the gambler by kenny rogers you got to know when to hold them know when to fold them 
Know when to walk away, know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough. I was trying to think of a song that made me think of someone else more than this one. I don't know why. I was like, there must be something again a bit cooler, but. Or, or like someone more interested with all respect to my brother. But <laughs> this song, I mean, The Gambler's a terrific song again. And yeah. again, like we were talking about earlier, there's some songs that, that they tell a great story. Again, mm-hmm. this is like, a, it could be a little road story, like a mm-hmm. wee buddy movie. Um, but this is the only song that I've ever seen my brother, my brother Kenny, you've met him, I think, a couple of times yes. at, at music festivals. But um, he's essentially the polar opposite to me in terms of um, in terms of lifestyle stuff and in terms of work and job. He's he's smaller than me. He wasn't like a big tall guy, squatter. He's into cars. You know, he's got a, a more traditional type of job. He, you know, he surveys buildings and loves taking about cars and all the rest. But he's he's never had any inclination to get up on a stage. You know, he doesn't like that kind of attention. However. <laughs> The Gambler by Kenny Rogers comes on and he is singing it. He's up on his feet. It's literally the only song I've ever heard him sing in karaoke. And he sang it and he sang it numerous times. He's not someone that would ever do karaoke, but if someone puts him in and it's the gambler by Kenny Rogers, he'll do it and he'll give it gusto. I mean, he is not a singer, but he loves the song so much it's infectious to watch him singing. The Gambler by Kenny Rogers. <laughs> Amazing. Um, it's funny you say about how it is a song that they could make a, a road movie about because they did. Um, oh, no way. <laughs> they did, yeah. So I found this out last night. On American television, they made a series of TV films about the characters in this song. No uh, way. And it is the... I'm going to read all the titles out for all five because they get better with each one. <laughs> So the first one's just called Kenny as the Gambler, right? Yes. That's volume one. Then the next one, Kenny as the Gambler, the adventure continues. <laughs> Number three, Kenny as the Gambler, the legend continues. Right? <laughs> these are these are the best ones, right? The Gambler returns, luck of the draw. <laughs> and then for for this, if 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 they could get Steven Seagal to play the Gambler in this last one, it would be perfect. Gambler 5, playing for keeps. Oh, yeah. yes. What an anthology. That is what oh, a miniseries. Oh, I'm desperate to see Gambler 5 playing for keeps. Oh, Just man. to... Oh, God. They're so wonderfully good. American names as oh, well, aren't they? Amazing. They, they could almost be titles for uh, The Littlest Hobo. Yeah. You know, the the <laughs> yeah. dog. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> uh, well, that is your brother's karaoke song. Your karaoke song, uh, you've gone for King of the Roads by Roger Miller. I'm a man of means, by no means, King of the Road, third box car, midnight train, destination banger, main. Roger Miller was somebody else that my, my parents loved. And this song, again, memories of my mum singing it as well. I think just, you know, the, the clicking of the fingers starting. Mm. The and it's so, it's a really kind of wholesome song. And um, I love singing it. It's, it's a kind of crooner-type style song to sing. Yeah. And um, 
I still haven't really lived this down to this day, but I loved singing this so much uh, on karaoke. Um, I, when Again, when I was a student, we used to go up to the Strathclyde Uni um, uh, Union where they had all the different levels. I'm sure you've probably been, yeah. been there as well. And I think it was, I don't know, level five or something, they would have a karaoke section before the kind of later stuff, I think between like 11 and 12. And I went up to sing and everyone was singing proper big hits of the day and i went up <laughs> to sing after my mate a mate of mine fishy real name stephen ford i should say he had just sing finished singing all along the watchtower by oh. jimmy hendrix and i went up to sing king of the road by roger miller and i've honestly never seen so many people leave like it was almost like a foreshadowing of some of my gigs to come in <laughs> in, in the future but honestly people got up and left but my overriding memory of singing this, what would have appeared to be a very non-cool song in front of a bunch of students at the Strathclyde Union, was one guy in particular, Stain, who was just off his face. He was so excited. Maybe he had a similar upbringing to me or similar parents. He was he was going, yes, yes, mate. <laughs> he was clicking his fingers, playing oh, of the road. And it was yeah. just me and this guy really loving it. And my mates gave me pelters for singing that, you know. <laughs> Well, there's your there's your drifters moment. Exactly. That guy coming in to harmonise with you. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> right, uh, best cover version, absolutely amazing. Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley. And I've seen your flag on the marble arch, and love is not a victory march. It's a cold, and it's a broken hallelujah, hallelujah. Kudos to, to, to uh, Leonard Cohen for writing it because lyrically it's, it's a oh. beautiful, complex song. It deals with so much. But yeah, again, one of these rare occasions where a cover version betters the original. Mm-hmm. And, and that's purely down to the fact that I said earlier that Glenn Hansard, I've not heard anyone been able to sing with that much passion, but right, right underneath him, Jeff Buckley. There, yeah. There's no one that can... Uh, portray and it emote such passion when he sings and that song just is the epiphany of that singing hallelujah the way he sings it is incredible yeah it's there's there's proper pain in his voice while he's singing it as well and i think it has as as with a lot of artists become more of a thing because he died not long that after it absolutely you kind of read into more yeah yeah. As you say, it's you go, wow, he, he really meant that. It's, it almost sounds like he was on his way out after recording that or something, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas if he hadn't died, it would have been this incredibly emotive song, but maybe not heralded in the same way, yeah. Yeah, but like you say, it is one of those songs that has become, it's not just better than the original, but it's become more recognisable than the original oh. as well. Hugely, yeah. Uh, I, I think probably just the unique style. It's certainly been used in a lot mm-hmm. of soundtracks for for films. And um, uh, but yeah, interestingly, you know, I know one person, and I had a huge argument with them once about this song because they preferred um, Rufus um, Wainwright. Oh, Rufus Wainwright's version, which I think was for like Shrek or something. You know? <laughs> But I, I mean, I'm adamant that even if he had died in the most tragic, yeah. <laughs> you know, the next day, it would still it wouldn't be close to this. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it's just the style that he sings it in. Yeah, I could think of this, and uh, nothing compares to you, the Sinead O'Connor version. Yeah, and yeah. I will always love you by Whitney Houston. They're the ones that are better and far more famous than their originals. That's true, and I think especially what you were saying there, nothing compares to you, is probably one of those songs that the majority of people maybe don't even realise exactly. is a cover because it's so famous for her doing it. Exactly, yeah. And obviously we do need to give massive respect to Leonard Cohen, who Oof. lyrically is just... I mean, the, the, the kind of biblical imagery in this song yeah. is phenomenal. I love the bit where he goes through the chords that correspond to the chords that are being used in the song. It's just, oh. Oh, it's just so, so good. Best song you've ever seen live. You're going for Photosynthesis by Frank Turner. One sit down, one shut up, and most of all I will not grow up. One sit down, one shut up, and most of all I will not grow up. I actually hadn't, I hadn't been aware of Frank Turner, and I was walking between... Um, tents if you like at tea in the park uh one year and i could see this kind of big crowd down at one of the stages i hadn't been i wish i could remember the stage um and i went down to see it because it seemed like there was a real big you know sometimes if uh, an act on stage just seems to get a collective mood mm-hmm. going like that there wasn't anyone that was just kind of hanging out at the back everyone seemed to be really engaged with this guy he was in the middle of a kind of uh chatty section he was like chatting up about what he just played and what he was about to play. So I started wandering down towards it and it was Frank Turner. And I kind of liked what he was saying. He was, And he started talking about how this next song was all about getting older and how he felt and all the rest of it. And so at a music festival, sometimes, you know, you've probably had a bit to drink in you. Mm-hmm. This was kind of late afternoon. But I'm, I'm getting engrossed in this because he was saying all this stuff that I was right in the middle of. It was pre-Eleanor. I was single, you know. Uh, all my mates were getting married, growing old, which this song talks about. Again, one of these times where you feel like a song can speak to you. You know, it's like um, you might feel like no one else feels the same way. Then you hear somebody sing a song that just catches you in that very moment. Yeah. And and not only that, but when he started singing it again, it was it was directed perfectly for my kind of folk sensibilities, but it was very much rock folk. And then the chorus hit, and evidently diehard fans of them seem to know that this is what you do um the chorus is i wouldn't sit down i wouldn't shut up you know most of all i will not grow up and it, the whole gathered crowd that was there was doing this whole brilliant thing of sitting down oh cool for the chorus the whole way through and the minute the, the, the chorus would bang in and i wouldn't sit down everyone was jumping up and i wouldn't shut up and most of all i will not grow up and i was like holy shit this is incredible and it just <laughs> I just, it just caught me, man. You know, I was like, I just felt it. It was, it was really festively. You know, it just felt a beautiful moment. Yeah. So then I, I got into it. My brother was with me. I was like, oh god, we have to sit down the next, the next verse and <laughs> jump up and really get into this. So, yeah, in terms of a, just a live experience that wasn't just about that was a brilliant song. I loved seeing that live. It felt like a moment. Um. So that's why I went for that. Brilliant story. Brilliant. Your guilty pleasure is uh, from the greatest showman. It's uh, never enough. All the shine of a thousand spotlights All the stars we steal from the night sky Will never be enough Never be enough Tons of gold are still too 
I, like, I almost don't believe when people say, you know, what's your guilty pleasure? I just don't believe there should be such a thing as a guilty pleasure. Mm-hmm. I think you should be able to, if you enjoy something for any reason, fine. You know, people will get slagged off if they maybe say like Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift. But I mean, God, I mean, Taylor Swift's last album was exactly. an absolute banger. So it, it really doesn't matter. But I, I can imagine that maybe the Greatest Showman soundtrack probably isn't high in a lot of people's lists in terms of guys you know in their in their late 30s early 40s however i i just cannot deny that the song never enough which is actually sung by lauren aldred is i don't know for whatever reason it really gets the hairs in the back of my neck standing up it's it's so i find it so powerful so moving i i think it's partly because the the chorus is almost that kind of operatic mm-hmm. style like in the film you know it's, it's she's supposed to be this opera singer that's coming to sing and it's so it's so again very emotive very powerful it's it's incredibly cheesy um but it's just a beautiful beautiful song and i, I don't know if it's just because again I'm, I'm a bit of a cheese ball and it seems to perfectly capture not being quite good enough for somebody yeah. and, and what desperately wanting to you can really hear this desperation and if you've ever felt like that of just not being good enough not even in love it just feels like so powerful and any yeah. song that hits that kind of emotion over and over and over again you know never enough never ever you're like god this is like you were saying some songs that can always sound painful yeah because the, the the other song that was very close which is a very similar vein but very different style was uh, there's a brilliant singer-songwriter that I love as well called Vance Joy, who has a song called "Best That I Can," where the chorus is just—it's just over and over again. I am trying the best that I can, mm-hmm. which, I, I, and for some reason, again, people are drawn to music that feels like it resonates with the kind of harder, difficult moments in your life. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, this is—it's in all its cheese, pomp, and glory. I, I love it. Musical songs and musicals should be cheesy. Like, yeah. If you if you look at the circumstances they're in. It's a massive group of people suddenly breaking out all into song together. Of course, it's going to be cheesy. It's not going to be. They're not going to do fucking hallelujah if it, there's just a load of guys down by the docks. They're not all going to break out into. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting. You're, you're, you're you said those two those two songs and the sentiments behind them because I think that's a. It's very much a, a comedy and even a performer's mental state that. The majority of people are good at it, and are and, and more importantly, that are likable, are constantly, constantly questioning themselves, and don't think they, that that imposter syndrome is massive. Yeah, it it does seem that it's such an unfortunate quality. But you're, you're right. I, I would I would say the same for the people I've spoken to in this world. Um, you're just racked with self doubt, <laughs> almost guilt, and I, I think that's. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I think especially once you're, you've you've got more responsibilities in life as well, mm-hmm. and, and 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 family, and you're thinking, oh, am I good enough? Like, should I be doing something else? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think it's just always that want to be better or good enough for the people around you, if anything. Yeah, and it doesn't get e- it doesn't get easier with age. That's that's the that's yeah. the thing. Like, it, it, you would imagine that in most walks of life and in most careers. The older you get, the more experience yeah. you have, the easier it would be to be comfortable in what you do. But it's almost, it, it's yeah. almost more difficult because you're ex- there is an expectation that by this age, 
you'll be yeah. proper settled and you'll be proper financially secure and you'll have a pension set up and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. And at most regular jobs, you get older. There's If you're in a, a more traditional type job, there's almost a kind of outset progression. You, you know mm-hmm. that there's maybe promotions you'll get and it will move up to some sort of degree and it's security. But as you're moving up in this world and you're getting older, you're A, worried about not being where you think you're hoped you, you would get to. But then B, unlike other jobs, there is a whole raft of younger comics mm-hmm. coming up that will easily replace you if you don't yeah. Yeah. keep I'm, up or refresh or anything. It's very much like being a footballer, I imagine. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're constantly looking over your shoulder for someone that someone new, someone that's providing something different, that are, that are maybe hungrier, and you need to keep up that level of creativity and hunger is the most important thing. That's it. And there's a great, um, just before we move on, there's a great interview I saw with Sam Neill, uh, the actor, and oh. he was talking about the kind of mental struggles he's had as an actor, and he was a very, very successful actor. He was one of the most popular films of all time. Yeah. But he said that the reason he finds it is is because being an actor, the majority of his life is rejection. Yeah, like, it is. F- rejection in any any uh, industry that is in entertainment, rejection far outweighs success. It's bang on the money, but you know, funnily other than that, I know the exact interview you're talking about, and I often, I actually often use another line that he says in it about why it's quite difficult, I guess, mental health and people having preconceived conceptions of you as well. He has a beautiful line about people saying, you know, so so you're an actor, and he, he says, no, you know. <laughs> acting's what I do but it's not who I am yeah yeah you know and I feel like that's perfect for comedy there's so many times where you feel like that's not you know you'll get judged the minute someone knows that you do stand up or you're a comedian or an actor and I just thought that was perfectly put you know that's what I do that this is supposed to be his job but I am many other things I do a lot of other things so don't just judge me on that but you are you are for the most part solely judged if you're in any sort of job in entertainment and so then your mental health can take a real battering if you think oh god this is all i'm getting judged on yeah exactly i think the only because the, the, the examples that always bring up is like when, when when people find out you're a comedian they always expect you to be the funniest person at a table at a wedding or something like that <laughs> yeah. there's always the, the 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 thing like if you're listening to this and you ever meet a comedian please don't <laughs> ask them to tell you a joke because my go-to is I tell them the most offensive fucking thing I can possibly think of, uh, just to go. Well, you we asked for a joke. There's no. Yeah. Um, uh, and it doesn't happen with other things. Like it doesn't happen with plumbers. It doesn't happen with uh, people that work in an office. The only other people I imagine that it happens with are doctors. Imagine yeah. if you say you're a doctor, people will probably go. I've got this thing. Like you wouldn't mind just taking a quick look at it. You know that, yeah. that kind of thing where. <laughs> it happens to my wife even as a psychologist if she's ever at oh, really? a party and people find out she's a psychologist you will see you know the most disturbed person in the room slowly <laughs> migrating towards oh, them or, wow. or cornering her uh, you know if they're getting a drink and, and, and people will really open up to her just with that thought of oh here's someone that will hopefully understand uh, if I start chatting to them about this that and the other wow that's really interesting and then, of course, someone like my gran will actually just ask her about, you know, her bunions because she doesn't actually <laughs> understand what kind of yeah, doctor she yeah. is. She just hears the word doctor. And- <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> uh, your next choice is a song that reminds you of a moment or place and you have picked Into My Arms by Nick Cave Into my arms Oh Lord Into my arms Oh Lord Into my arms Oh Lord Into my yeah, again, another beautiful song that, again, is it's a beautiful storytelling song, um, which I love. But in terms of a moment or place, this was uh, me and my wife, Eleanor's first dance song. Mm. So I loved it before, but now any time I hear the song, I remember us having that moment, me and her just in front of friends and family, having our own little secluded moment with this song. So... A thing I didn't know about it was that uh, Nick Cave performed this at Michael Hutchins' funeral. Wow. Yeah, and it was being streamed and filmed and beamed out to a load of NXS fans and Nick Cave asked for all the cameras to be turned off while he did this because he didn't fit, he didn't feel it was appropriate. Oh yeah, well, that's cool. And I, I, didn't, I didn't even realise they were, but apparently they were so close, Michael Hutchins and Nick Cave. God. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. It's another song. This is another one of the themes. There's a lot of songs in this. There's a lot of songs on your list that have got kind of religious imagery. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, because are you, have you got a religious background? Yeah, I think, I, I think it's no surprise that that comes up. I think I've probably spoken in the past about that kind of bizarre change in, um, Again, Northwest Coast, we free mm-hmm. um, upbringing kind of community, and kind of slowly, I think, almost pulling away from faith and going to church and mm-hmm. living in the central belt. But it it does leave you, if you think you feel guilt when you actually are <laughs> involved in the church or religious, mm-hmm. the amount of then extra guilt you feel from kind of pulling away from it. Um, yeah, a lot a lot of people that gone through the same thing talk about all of a sudden there's a bit of a faith void you know yeah um because at least when you did go to church or believe in something you kind of had an idea of what you thought life was a life was about or what the meaning was so when you strip that away or kind of start losing faith you kind of go wow now i've got an even bigger existential crisis because i don't know what anything means or is about yeah but yeah i do think that i have always been drawn to people that sing about that type of difficulty with struggling to believe is there isn't there especially when it comes to pain yeah. or loss it makes you question it all the more and um because yeah there's there's another song i love that's more modern the 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 hoosier song you know mm-hmm. um where it take me to church uh, and i'll and i'll pray at the throne of your life you know i'll, I'll give you my life and uh, you know if you if you take away my sin talking about yeah. the kind of absurdity of it so yeah it's, I hadn't noticed that in the list, but it's funny that you point it out. Yeah, even even one of your, your songs you pick as your favourite. It's although it's there's not as much religious iconography. It's a very very spiritual, yeah, type of song and ans- asks big questions about the world. Um, with the guilt you have when you leave a faith, is that guilt that is that completely guilt that you've put on yourself, or is it guilt that is put on you by others? It's guilt that I put on myself um, because of others, though. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I don't want to let them down. Or, but And the way I always say it now is, you know, when you say that 
these songs are more spiritual. I like to think now that I'm just more open, that I'm just more mm-hmm. spiritually inclined rather than, you know, I've kind of grown to hate religion in general in terms of I just don't think there should be these institutes that, you know, instantly then divide one another. I I, yeah. I, I love the fact that they give people hope and encouragement and comfort, but, um, you know, we go down a whole rabbit hole of Scottish schools and having yeah, yeah. Know, Catholic schools. I just think anything that causes division and differences from a young age can really skewer your outlook on life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I feel guilty pulling away from it. Uh, and then also you feel almost a bit scared, a bit worried, because you're like, yeah. is this the right thing? When you people talk about core memories i mean if you grew up in a religious family these things are ingrained in your in your mind it's like yeah. muscle memory so to yeah. try and start thinking in different ways kind of terrifying yeah i mean and, and was it just a gradual kind of moving away from it as you got older and just yeah i think so and you know it seems really cliche but and in terms of you know my family who i love dearly and people that are very religious they probably haven't had the same opportunities to do this but uh, traveling was was a huge thing yeah. getting to go to america when i was 16 and all of a sudden meeting a whole range more you know it's just such a much more diverse multicultural place over there so different yeah. people at school with different religions and different beliefs was lucky enough to travel around europe and then asia and all of a sudden you're thinking this can't be right i mean uh, at this the small church congregation in in Pulieu did yeah. seem pretty mighty with hell and damnation but i'm over here in you know in laos now uh, learning about buddhism and <laughs> yeah, you know yeah uh, and i love the fact i think frank skinner said something similar about i slowly started to realize that it, it was like football teams you know it's like if you grow up in france you're going to support france and mm-hmm. you know we, we're in scotland we support scotland and I was like, wait a minute, just because I grew up there, that that's, doesn't necessarily make this the be-all and end-all. I mean, yeah. if, if, I'd, if I'd grown up in Thailand, I probably yeah. wouldn't be this. No, exactly. So. And it is, it is a lot of pressure to put on on children that I don't think people... Because I, I grew up, uh, my mum and dad took me... It was more my mum. Uh, she would take me to church and I, Sunday school. My grandparents were incredibly religious, incredibly involved with the church. And it is a huge amount of pressure to put on children because... They're not only getting their moral guidance and compass from their parents, but then there's this whole other overarching thing that judges on how they behave and how they live their life. Yeah. And that that level of scrutiny to put on a child is quite it's it's quite a cruel cruel thing to do. It's it's huge, really. Yeah, when you think about it, I always talk about now when I when I go to see, which you know, I'm certainly not against still friends or families doing anything that was religious but when i see or go to people's christenings of small babies mm-hmm. and cer- certainly the ones in more kind of traditional style churches where there is a bit more hell and damnation but i've got the christenings and, and the ministers there got the baby in its arms and hair and you know it's going forgive forgive this child you know, forgive this child and you're like Baby's looking up, going, I, I've, I've not done anything. I mean, <laughs> yeah, 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 you're like, you're yeah, yeah. born into sin, you <sighs> demon, you know? It's like, I know. God, I mean, it's it's just it's so much. I know, I know. Right, next song, uh, Hidden Gem. Um, you've gone for Nothing Stays the Same by Luke Sital Singh. Yeah. 
this is someone uh, probably the most recent or kind of most modern singer songwriter that I've, I've absolutely love and I, I kind of sing his praises and tell anyone I meet about him um, but the, the song again particular nothing stays the same again lyrically uh, is wonderful uh, probably similar themes again to a lot of the stuff we're talking about but um, I, I also love the fact that um, I, I, I've been to see him live and um, he's he's got a he's got a good following but he doesn't have a massive following but he has done a lot of great stuff. He's, he's done a number of albums. I think I've got three of his albums, but he's got about six. He's quite prolific. Um, but when I went to see him, it was up in, what's it called? The S- SWG3? Or... Yeah. And uh, the minute the tickets were released, I thought, oh, I need to get my ticket quickly. That's a really small venue. Um, but I got tickets, no bother. Me, me and Eleanor went along to see him. And the place was dead. There, there must have been about 35, 40 people there. And at the time, I remember thinking, I can't believe that. I mean, this guy's incredible. I mean, uh, that this that song in particular is his kind of biggest song, I guess maybe his most successful song. But um, he's got so many great songs. He's a great uh, songwriter. And at, this, at the same time as me, I, I remember putting a post up afterwards saying, you know, I'm shocked that it wasn't as busy. I feel like more people should know who they are, but I feel incredibly lucky that we got to be one of the very few people standing there watching them perform live. Yeah. In that, intimate, in that intimate an environment, yeah. Yeah, and if you listen to that song and any of the other ones, again, he sings with great emotion, great storytelling songs. And um, he also, part of his little merchandise desk afterwards, which he just manned himself with his tour manager, um, he was selling badges, which I loved, that just said, sad songs rock. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know... That probably tells you everything you need to know about me and my musical choices. But <laughs> excellent, right? Uh, one of your favourites now, "Free Rain." Just one of your favourite songs, and you have picked "Into the Mystic" by Van Morrison. I mean, Van Morrison is a, he's an easy go-to person when if I don't know what I'm in the mood for um, or I can't think of anything in particular, I can't go wrong with Van Morrison. And um, Into the Mystic, Mystic, again, is just one of these ones that captures this kind of mood. It's kind of, you feel like you're kind of transported, kind of travelling, free, wild, and when it builds up to just that chorus and I want to rock your gypsy soul, but it's just this beautiful thing. And again, into the mystic, it's just mm. this wonderful kind of magical type feeling when it comes to music again. There's a huge, I mean, it's it's a very layered song and it's huge. I mean, this, this is one I was talking about. It was very, very spiritual as well because it's mm-hmm. on the kind of surface it's basically a kind of story of a sailor at sea yeah. who's returning to his girlfriend or wife and partner. Um, but then there's so much more about it when you kind of when you read into it. There's like it, it, it's basically huge questions about life yeah. and uh, the fact that acceptance that life is a finite thing. But the most important thing is if you've lived life to your fullest, then you shouldn't really fear it coming to an end because you've done everything you're supposed to have done. 
Yeah, oh god, that sums it up pretty beautifully. Yeah, it's. I mean, that, that's that, that's a fucking a hell of a big question <laughs> when you start thinking about it. You know that kind of that kind of thing of. I suppose everyone would want to get to that kind of stage where, if they know life's coming to an end, they can be completely content in the fact that they have lived the best life they possibly could have. Yeah, I mean, again, these are these are probably why I love these types of songs, and again anyone that's kind of works in the arts is probably drawn to quite um, almost kind of indulgent songs about the meanings of life because it's what you strive to do and if you work in the arts you're hopefully just a bit more confident in yourself to not worry about how weird that is to think about whereas most people like to kind of put their head down and, and, and muddle through but I would say my sister-in-law I used to usually always wind her up for her musical taste because I mean there is absolutely a time and a place for just like dance music and mm-hmm. um she loves a song I can't even remember who sings it or what it is about I'm, I'm you know the one that has the lyrics I'm I'm, tr- I'm trying hard or I'm trying hard to find words to describe you without being disrespectful or something like mm-hmm. just, and uh I'm always saying this is this is utter guff you're listening to <laughs> like what what is this and I, I've always been drawn to songs that and I've always said in life as well hopefully but probably in the musical choices i always try and seek passion and purpose yeah and and so i like songs that deal with both of those things like i like a song that's been written and sung for a reason rather than just obviously there's a time and a place you know yeah um for a, other types he's a he's a difficult man van morrison oh yeah um, yeah even before what's happened in the past year van morrison was always one of the whenever there was a question of who's the most difficult person you've interviewed or who's the most difficult person to have been around on tour, Van Morrison's always up there. Like, he yeah. seems like a proper grumpy bastard. Yeah, and I, I, he's certainly one of these other kind of, what I guess, when you're in that position, because it gives you a bit of a, a gravitas to say it, but probably like a tortured artist who certainly yeah. likes likes a drink. Yeah, oh God, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's the stories about him being rude and being arrogant and all this kind of stuff, which I don't mind. Like, I, I, I actually prefer my rock stars and musical artists to have a bit of that because when people go, they're not very down to earth. Well, I don't really want a rock star that's down to earth, to be honest, because they shouldn't be like everyone else. There's a reason that I would pay and go and see. It's like when people go on about Liam Gallagher being arrogant, I was like, good. Like why the fuck shouldn't he be arrogant? He's he he was he was nineteen years old in the biggest band in the world. I'd be fucking arrogant, you know. Yeah. And yeah, people because people say we've talked we've kind of compared it quite a lot, but people talk about we're young footballers, and they go, oh, they don't live in the real world. No, they don't live in the real world because they've never had a chance to live in the real world. They were signed up to a club at twelve years old. Their family were taken care of, and since they've been seventeen years old. They've earned more money in a month than you'll ever see in your life. <laughs> what we if you were given that money, how the fuck would you act? Do you know what I mean? It's like it's, it's impossible not to be different. Yeah. yeah. But then but then you get judged on it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah, but you, you you definitely want your kind of artists and performers and sports people to kind of be flawed a bit, you know, because it, it also makes them a bit realer. There's no point in having this kind of unattainable idea of something that you could never achieve yourself you want to go like look at this guy's exactly a bit of an arsehole he likes a drink he's done drugs but he's brilliant oh you know that's so it's achievable you don't have to be this 
absolute kind of yeah carbon copy of something. Yeah, but the, the, I mean the big problem with Van Morrison is in the past year he's become massively not anti-COVID. I think we're all anti-COVID, but it's not not many huge fans of coronavirus. But uh, he's been very outspoken in his belief that is any of this real? Very conspiracy fu- theorist. Yeah, it's funny that the, the it's funny the particular musicians in particular that have mm-hmm. come forward and spoken out about it. Because um, there's Ian Brown, he's another one as well, yeah. isn't he? And there's a couple. There's a, there's a particular type that feels a person uh, at that level that almost seems to enjoy again, just kind of uh, going against the grain, uh-huh. speak, speaking out about something. But whether it's just uh, the age thing or generational. Or if yeah. it is just that a bit of them still trying to be like, I'm still, you know, I Rebelling. guess you want your musicians to be kind of anti-establishment. Yeah. And that's interesting. I didn't think about that, actually. There is probably a big element of contrarism yeah. in them, that they, they are just saying this. But I'm, I'm wondering what it'll be like once this is all, not even like once it's over and f- our lockdown's all finished, when this is all over and kind of in the past a bit, if those artists will still suffer from that, from what they've yeah. said now, because it was it was a chat I had with Milo McCabe in the podcast where we were talking about Pete, uh, Pete Townsend. Right. And could you separate an artist's behaviour from the music that they've created? And this is, kind of, <laughs> this is kind of the same, because with Ian Brown and Van Morrison, I don't really give a shit that they've, they've got these views and they've got these things, because it's not going to take away how much I love their music. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the the biggest example of that probably now for all time is going to be Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. And you have people debating, or oh, should you be listening to him because of all the allegations and thinking people come mm-hmm. forward. But I mean, even if even if you 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 should you should always be able to enjoy uh, the musical output. I, yeah. I imagine because the personal life is a completely different thing. I guess it'd be like. Well, my accountant is still doing my books, you know, mm-hmm. but maybe in his personal life, he's, I don't know, had a strangle wank or something, but it's yes. like, <laughs> but you know, he's, he's, he's a bloody good accountant. And yeah. I, I've just realized that we both have the same accountant. Yes. So hopefully, yes. Kev, don't, that was just an example, Kevin, if he's yes. listening to this. If you are listening to this, Kevin, put down the belt and just wait till <laughs> we finish the podcast. <laughs> put on TFI Friday, that'll help you along. Uh, the, uh, this, Doug Stanhope's got an incredible. Uh, line about that where he's like that you, you shouldn't judge the the job that people are doing by what their beliefs are he's like and the, the example he gives is somebody going to a lap dancing bar and goes my lap dance is a, my lap dance is a communist he's like gives a fuck <laughs> <laughs> it's like she's doing the job for you just now gives a fuck right you're closing track we've come to the end the last dance you've gone for Robin Hood by Ocean Colour Scene take yourself for a ride it never felt so good as the night that you and I played Robin Hood, stealing from the back rooms of my mind. At the end of House Party, I just I loved house parties. I used to love throwing parties. This would be one that I'd put on, and me and my mates who loved Ocean Colors scene would be singing this drunk and again it's just another one of these kind of perfect for kind of um 
introspective thought and kind of looking back and when you're drunk and you're kind of reminiscing about stuff and again contemplating life mm-hmm. it's got all those types of qualities and perfectly summed up by the fact that my brother who had his 40th during lockdown but we just had a few people around the back garden at the very end of the night my wife's got a hilarious video on her phone of a bunch of us me him and a couple of his pals singing very badly robin hood by ocean color scene <laughs> it's just like it's time to go home lads type of song it's like yeah it's again it's a beautiful song but it's just yeah you've had much, enough like a lot of ocean color scene songs it's proper reminiscing about childhood there's a hell of yeah. a lot of other songs where they talk about what they did growing up and um it's another that it was that era where because this is a b-side like this yeah. is like and and it's one of their most because I've seen Ocean Colour scene, I think I've seen Ocean Colour scene more times live than any other band. And this song goes down better than any other song that they'll do live. Uh. And um, the fact that it's a B-side, and that that time, that kind of 1994 to 97, the quality of B-sides that people were putting out yeah. is just incredible. Like, that, 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 that was, it was, it was such a rich seam of creativity that... The, the the things that they didn't deem good enough for the album would have been oh. for another band the best song on on an yeah. album. Again, it's it's probably something that would sum up my preferences musically in a kind of larger scale. If we look at an Ocean Colour scene example of again they had brilliant massive hits, uh, you know, in the Riverboat song David Caught the Train. But my favourite album was the B Size C Size and Free Rides one yeah. that they put out. Just again. I preferred kind of acoustic, kind of more raw, uh, emotive type uh, versions of the, a lot of the songs. So yeah, I uh, I, have a, I have a personal connection to this song. Uh, I got engaged during this song. Oh no way! Yeah, um, we were at, at a concert. Yeah, at the Wickerman Festival. Um, oh, no way. Ocean Colour scene. It was. It was. I mean, it was. I I I don't think I could have designed a better lineup because the Charlatans headlined on the Saturday night. An ocean colour scene headlined on the Sunday night, <laughs> and uh, while they were doing this song, I proposed to my wife in the crowd at Ocean Colour Scene. No way! Uh, yeah, and she nearly never came because the weather was so <laughs> shite. So I was there with a mutual pal of ours, uh, Mikey Adams. Yeah, and uh, we'd 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 had a great great time on the fright on the on the Saturday night, and then Sunday night Sunday morning we woke up and it was pissing down, uh, and. My wife said, I, I, don't, I don't really fancy And I was like, well, because I'd already planned I was going to do this, do your notion colour scene. And I was like, well, you kind of need to come. And she's like, nah, I think I'll just, I'll go with my sisters or something. And it's so hard trying to convince someone to do something without giving any kind of game away. Because I was basically going, listen, you need to come to this pissing down festival to see a band you saw maybe six months previous and stay in a tent and be miserable all night. You have to do that. I'm like. <laughs> Right, Chris, that's the end of your playlist. Thank you so much. There's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, genuinely, thank you so much for talking to me for the past hour. Honestly, thank you so much, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I what a great what a great joy to look back at a lot of these songs as well. So I'm glad. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Cheers, man. Thank you. And that's that, episode 7 done. Thank you very much to Chris for being an amazing guest and 
given us some proper, proper interesting stuff to talk about. I'll be back again next week. In the meantime, please follow Chris Forbes on all of his social media links, which will be on the podcast description. Please follow the podcast itself at Perfect Play Pod on Twitter. Um, please go and listen to the Spotify playlist, which again will be in the podcast description. Uh, plug wise, I have friend shows coming up. Uh, there's four more on sale now. I have also rescheduled all my stand dates at Glasgow. So if you go to the stand.co.uk, you'll be able to see all of the dates I'm playing. It would be amazing. I'm very, very much looking forward to getting back on stage and doing our long shows again. So if you do enjoy the kind of shite that it is that I do, then please buy some tickets. It would be absolutely cracking. I will be back next week with another wonderful guest. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with the words of the grumpiest bastard in music, Van Morrison, who once said, Music is spiritual. The music business is not. See you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>